Welcome to the Grace High School Podcast. This semester, we are continuing in our series in defense of the faith. All right, guys. Welcome back to our Wednesday night series. We're going we're gonna to continue tonight in our series in defense of the faith. As we begin, if you want to be turning in your Bibles to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 16 here in just a second. So that's 2 Timothy 3, 16. And this week, uh, we, we've already talked about several questions uh, regarding our faith, several questions that we face as believers, maybe from the outside world or even internally that we struggle with. And so tonight, we're going we're gonna to do our, our fourth question, uh, and then we'll have a fifth one and a break, and then we'll come back and do uh, the second half of this series uh, on the other side of our, of our break. So, so tonight, what we're looking at is the question, how do we know the Bible is reliable? So we're going to talk about the reliability of Scripture tonight. How do, how do we know that the Bible uh, is reliable? And then, and then sort of on the flip side of that question, or, or the, a question that always comes along with it, is are there errors and contradictions in the Bible? And so, so we want to look at the reliability of Scripture. How many of you in here have, have either been asked this question or you've asked this question yourself? How do we trust the Bible? How do we know that it's reliable? Okay, so, so this is, a, again, this is a real common question that we're faced with. A lot of times from the outside world, we hear a lot of criticism uh, from, from non-Christians criticizing our Bible, that it's not reliable, that it's, that it's uh, a, lot of different, a lot of different criticisms come along with it. Uh, so some of those uh, sub-criticisms we'll get to in just a second, but before we do, I wanted to look at this, uh, this passage in 2 Timothy real quick. So 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so that's where we're going to begin tonight. This verse that tells us that, hey, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's good for all of these, these different purposes that we need in, in our Christian life. And so as we examine this question of how do we know that the Bible is reliable, it comes with, like I said, some of these sort of uh, subcategories or sub-questions that, that are always attached to it. And so here's a, here's a list of a few of those questions, and we'll kind of address these as we go through. Uh, do we even know who wrote the Bible? A lot of times that's, that's in there. Do, do we know who the authors of the Bible are? Are they just random people, or, or, or are they uh, anonymous people that we've never actually heard of, or we can't actually connect them to the, to the Scriptures? Uh, wasn't the Bible put together by people who just thought it seemed right? Like, like, isn't this just sort of an arbitrary, random assembly of books and texts? Is, is that what we're dealing with, with the scriptures? Isn't the Bible too old to be accurate or relevant? I mean, it's 2,000 years old. I hear that one all the time. Why do we listen to or, or uh, ascribe to or, or allow this book to influence us? Because it's 2,000 years old. Shouldn't it be really out of date and irrelevant? And then doesn't the Bible condone things like polygamy, slavery, and genocide? And, and the list of those could go on. And so those are some of the accusations that we get, some of the questions that we get asked of our, of our Bible. And so we're going to look at some of those as we go through. But I wanted to start with this quote as we move into uh, our first section. I want to start with this quote from a guy named Daniel Trier. And he says, For a long time, historical criticism of the Bible seemed to involve criticism of everything except itself. And I love this quote. We'll, we'll, we'll tie this up at the end, but, but this quote really reminds me that so many of the problems people have with the scriptures are not so much uh, the Bible itself in terms of its historical uh, validity and, and the ability that we have to prove it, but rather the message, the content, that people disagree 
uh, with what's in the Bible, and so, so they have a, a, a problem up front. And so they'll find reasons not to believe in it, reasons not to follow it, because they don't like what it says. And so I, I think this quote really uh, sums that up well. So, so where we're going to start tonight in all of this is with revelation and inspiration. And so as we look at revelation and inspiration, uh, we start with the question, what is revelation? Now, I'm not talking about the book at the end of your Bible. Uh, I'm talking about revelation as in God revealing himself to us. And theologically speaking, there are two ways that God reveals himself to us. There's what we call general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is going to be something that any one of us may experience at any time. And any person in history uh, could experience general revelation. It's something that's available to everybody, anywhere, at all times. So we could be talking about uh, the sun rising and and providing warmth for us. And and we look at creation, we look at a a mountain range, and we go, wow, that's amazing. I'm so glad that 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 is there. And and I I look at that and I see that the the artwork or the, the creation of a creator and so that's a form of general revelation. Another form of general revelation is our, is our conscience. It's our, our moral compass that tells us what's right and what's wrong. And we go, well, because I have this moral co- compass and because everyone else has one real similar, we look around and we go, this is something that God put in us. This is God's general revelation to all of us that he is there. But then there's special revelation. And special revelation is something that only happens to certain people at certain times. And there's lots of different forms of special revelation. We won't get into all of them, things like uh, angels, things like dreams and visions and, and different prophecies. And, and, and so there are lots of different forms, and the Bible is itself a form of special revelation. But it's also, uh, it's also a composite of a lot of other special revelations within it. And so the Bible is a special revelation of God. It's, it's him revealing himself through his word to you and to me. And so that's what, we, that's what we were talking about with revelation. Now, what is inspiration? And so if you've heard the word inspiration, what, what, is, what, is, the, what, what is meant by this, this term inspiration? What do we mean when we say the Bible is inspired by God? Well, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so for me, as I grew up and I heard this, this term, this, this phrase that the Bible was inspired the inspired word of God, I always thought this was sort of this mystical idea that, that it was really hard to wrap my head around how God inspires somebody to write something, how that can be God's word, not that person's word. How does, how does somebody inspired by God to write something? And I found a quote that I think really helps to, to clear that, that up, to help us to understand what that looks like. It's from a guy named Charles Ryrie, and he says this, uh, this verse tells us as much as any single verse How God used the human writers to produce the Bible. The Holy Spirit moved or bore them along. That's the the term in the the original Greek language. The use of the same verb in Acts 27.15 illuminates our understanding of what is meant by bearing or moving the human writers. Just before the ship that was taking Paul to Rome uh, was wrecked on the island of Malta, it ran into a storm. uh, Though experienced men, the sailors could not guide it. So they finally had to let the wind take the ship over uh, wherever it blew. In the same manner as the ship was driven, directed, or carried by the wind, God directed or moved the human writers to produce the books of the Bible. And he goes on to explain how when you look at the sailors guiding the ship, they're not asleep, they're not passive, they're active, they're doing things, but ultimately it's the wind that is, is taking them where they're going to go. 
and they don't have the power to, to change the wind. They have to go where the wind takes them. And so in the same way, the writers are sort of at the, at the, um, at the call of God. They're at, they're at God's, uh, they're submitted to God. God is working through them. And so I, I thought about this and I, I went, you know what, there's other ways that people can be moved to, to write something. And, I, and, and in 2 Peter, he says uh, that these weren't produced by the will of men, that something uh, not of their will, but something different caused them to write these things. And I thought about how sometimes we do things that are not of our will because we're moved uh, by something different. And I thought that sometimes we do things that we don't necessarily want to do. It's not our will, but, but our moral sense of right and wrong tells us we need to do this. Even though it's not what I want to do, that's what I know I should do. And so we are moved or guided by a sense of morality. Sometimes love can do that. We can be driven by love. That, that, that When we uh, feel love and, and practice love, that that, what that does is takes our will and puts it secondary. And so we will move and, and act according to love and not our own will. And so we see examples of what it looks like to be guided and, and in this same way inspired by something bigger or, or different from our will. And it's in that way that the writers were inspired uh, by God to write. This is God speaking through them, but they're certainly, uh, he uses their gifts, their creativity, and their uniqueness to speak through them. And so uh, that, that's, what we, that's what we're talking about with inspiration. Now we're going to move on to the canon of Scripture. So the canon of Scripture, what this simply means is how, how the Scriptures were assembled, how they were brought together. So we ask that question, is this just a random, uh, random assortment, a random collection of writings, or is there order to it? And what does that order look like? And that's what the canon of Scripture is. It's the, the, the assembly of Scripture. But first, we're going to look at this term, transmission. And so what we mean by transmission is how was the Bible uh, transmitted or transcribed? So when we have one copy and we need another copy and another copy and another copy, that's the transmission of the Bible. That's how we get from an original copy to what you have in your hands now. You don't have, obviously, the original copy of what was written. You have another copy. And so that's the transmission, moving from from the original into what we now have in our hands. So we see uh, new uh, versions of the Bible. And so how do we get transmission? And how do, we, how do we trust the process of transmission? Well, first we have what's called the Masoretic text, or the Masoretic text. And so the Masoretes uh, were scribes in the 6th century AD, so this goes back a long, long time, to so the 6th century AD, who transcribed the Hebrew Old Testament. And they did this with excruciating detail. I've heard stories about the way that these guys would record uh, the, the, uh, the original Hebrew text. So what they would do is they would copy it, and they had to do it uh, letter for letter in the Hebrew language, the original language, and they would do it with such excruciating detail. First of all, their lives were built around this. This was what they did for their lives. This was their lifelong pursuit. These aren't guys who uh, checked in at 5 o'clock when they got off work, came in for a couple hours, uh, wrote these things down, and then went home. These are guys who did, they were like monks who would do this and nothing else. And so they did it with excruciating detail to the point that if you think of our English language where we have uh, dotting our I and crossing our T, they said if, if you would even get one of those dots or crosses wrong, that they would take the whole scroll and throw it in the fire and start over. So they did this with excruciating detail. So when we, when we talk about the transmission of these, these texts, are they accurate? Are they true to the originals? Well, that's some of what we see when we talk about getting from the original to us. Yes, they, were, uh, they are accurate because they were done with excruciating detail. Next, we have what's called the Septuagint. Um, sometimes it's represented by the letters LXX. The Septuagint uh, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
And it's translated by Jewish scholars in Alexandria around 200 AD. So again, this goes way, way back. And so we have the, the Old Testament transcribed from the Hebrew into the Greek, which was the common language. And, and that was done by, uh, again, by these, these guys who did this nonstop with a lot of, of, of attention to detail. Then we had the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered uh, right after World War II. And, uh, and these Old Testament recordings uh, date back to the first or the second century BC. So these go uh, about a thousand years further back than what we have with, with the, uh, the Masoretic text. Um, and that makes them uh, even older and more reliable sources of the original text. And then finally, we have ancient copies of the New Testament. And so when we look at these ancient copies of the New Testament, we have about 5,000 copies. Um, and, and with these 5,000 copies, there are variations. So we do see things like, like maybe a letter is different here versus on this copy. And so there's minor details that are different on all these 5,000, not all of them, but across the 5,000, we see some variation. Not enough to change the meaning of, of a verse or a passage, but we see these minor details and changes. And what the, the scholars can do is they take those and they cross-reference them and they look and they can trace back uh, where those, those variations happen. And they can get back, and, and really that gives them an even better barometer of accuracy to get back to what the original text said. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls and then these ancient copies really gave us a lot of uh, assurance that what we have in our hands is very, very accurate to the originals. Now I want to give you a frame of reference for what, it, what the, the accuracy of our text looks like versus other ancient texts. So you'll see here, you've got guys like Plato, Euripides, Caesar, uh, Aristotle, and Homer, who all wrote these very famous works uh, of literature that are, that are what we would consider to be very ancient, right? And, and so in that second column, what you're looking at is the, the number of years or the length of time between when the author of that text died and when we have the, the, the most recent text of, of what they did. And so they died, and then in Plato's case, we know Plato lived 1,200 years before the earliest copy of, of his work that we have available to us, which means it's been uh, copied and transmitted over and over for 1,200 years uh, since his death, and that's the earliest manuscript of his that we have. And so you'll see with these others, Euripides, 1,300 years, Caesar, 1,000 years, Aristotle, 1,400 years, and Homer, 400 years until we get the first, uh, what we would consider to be original uh, transcript. And then the number of copies of those that we have, in most cases, is very, very minimal. Seven, nine, 10, 49. And then for Homer, we get all the way up to 643. But how does that compare to the New Testament? Well, with the New Testament, the authors died less than 100 years before our earliest copies of the, the manuscripts. And so that, that brings us much, much closer than all of these other texts. And we consider a lot of these texts to be very historically accurate. We never really question the validity of these other ones. People question the validity of the Bible, uh, but not these. And yet the Bible uh, brings us much, much closer to the, the time that the original authors lived. What about the number of copies that we have? Like I said, over 5,000, 5,600 copies compared to, uh, to 643 or 49 or even fewer than that. And so what this does is gives us a rate of accuracy. A lot of people have estimated it at around 99.5% accuracy uh, from what we have to what the original text must have been. Just calculating, doing the statistics, running the, the numbers, that's what we can be uh, assured of, that we have 99.5% accuracy with these manuscripts. So then we, we move into canonization. And so what is, what is the canonization? Well, we're going 
we're going to ask a couple questions, and, and, and these, are, these are not, this is not the only way to describe canonization, but it's the way that we'll, we'll describe it for the sake of our discussion. First of all, we look at the author, who wrote it. And so, so we're really thinking, uh, we're thinking how the canonizing body would have done this. So the people that actually assembled the Bible, we're thinking, how, how do we assemble the Bible the way that they're, they're going to approach this? So first they're going to go, who's the author? Who wrote it? Then they're going to say, what's, what's, the, what's the content of it? What does it say? What's going on in this text? And, and what can we say about the content? How does that match up uh, with others? And then there's a couple other standards we'll look at as well. But first we're going to look at the, the idea of the authorship. So who wrote it? Well, in the Old Testament, it was a prophet. And it was somebody who would have been recognized by the nation of Israel as an authoritative figure. Did the, did the nation of Israel recognize this person as the mouthpiece of God? When they said, I speak on behalf of the Lord, did Israel go, okay, we're, we're listening. You're qualified for this. Because if somebody said, I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord, and Israel is like, yeah, we don't care. You don't, you don't really matter. Then they're not going to really look at that in this consideration. But did, were, they, were they recognized as a prophet, an authority figure in the nation of Israel? And then as we move into the New Testament, the, the authors of the New Testament are what we call apostles. And so were they an apostle or did they have apostolic association, which means did they live alongside Jesus? Did they walk with him? Did they know Jesus personally? Did they witness him? That made them an apostle as they were disciples who studied under him and lived and breathed and, and walked alongside Jesus. That made them an apostle. That gave them authority. Or did this person have authority given to them by apostles? Did the apostles say, yeah, he may not have been there, but, but trust us, he's, he's legit. And so in the case of somebody like Paul, Paul didn't live alongside Jesus. He met the Jesus in, the, in, in, uh, in glorified form. When Jesus the, in the resurrection came to, to be with Paul, to, to see Paul, uh, Paul experienced that presence of Jesus, but he didn't walk alongside Jesus and live alongside Jesus during his ministry. But we have the apostles saying, hey, Paul is legit. Paul knows what he's talking about, and you can trust Paul. And so uh, we have Luke, the same thing. We have the apostles saying, Luke, what he's saying, we talked about Luke last week with the, with the, the account of Jesus, and Luke was legit. He, he was a, a physician who followed Paul around, and the apostle said, yeah, Luke knows what he's talking about too. So did they, were they an apostle, or did they have apostolic association? And so those are critical points that the, the people canonizing the scriptures would look at. Next is the content. We're looking at what it says. And so uh, was it similar to other books in Scripture? The, the good thing about the Bible is it says, hey, this is the Bible. When you, when you read passages, it's claiming to be the authoritative word of God. And so where it says it's the authoritative word of God, we go, well, well, do the other books match what it's saying about God's word? And so they would look at that and they'd go, is there similarity? Can we, can we say this looks like the rest of the Bible? Because if it doesn't, we're going to throw it out. And that's, this is a very strict process of screening that a lot of books don't make the cut. And then is it consistent with the character and the commands of God? When we see it describe God or give commands on behalf of God, is that consistent with the rest of Scripture? And so these are all, again, considerations that these people would have taken into account. And finally, we'll look at one other, one other standard that we'll, we'll kind of talk about is the early church recognition. So in the early church, we had guys who studied under those apostles. So those apostles would have been leaders in the early church, and then the churches around them who were, who were uh, learning from them and, and being taught and preached to by these men, did they, did they say, yeah, he loved to read from that book. That was, that was a letter that he loved to read from and preach from. Because if he did, then they would say, that counts for something. So let's, let's bring it into consideration. Should we canonize this book if the apostles used it in church? And so that was another form 
uh, of, of canonizing the scriptures. There were a lot of considerations that they took. These were very, uh, very strictly scrutinized. And so when we talk about the canonizing of scripture, we're not talking about a random assembly of books, but a, a, an assembly of books that makes a lot of sense and is very, very, again, strictly scrutinized and put together. Uh, another note um, about the authority of scripture, I, I want to point out that the people bringing the Bible together, the people canonizing the Bible, they believe in what we call the authority of Scripture. That's part of the doctrine of Scripture, that Scripture has authority. That means the Bible is better than my judgment, the Bible is better than my will, and it, it is above what I desire, think, believe. Uh, my opinions don't matter compared to the Bible. That's, that's giving the Bible authority, that it is the authoritative Word of God. And with that, the people assembling it would not have said, well, I don't really like how this book sounds, so I'm going to throw it out. Uh, this doesn't make sense to me, so I'm going to throw it out. They would say, no, the Bible is the Bible. And even if I don't like it, even if I don't agree with it, it's, it's the truth. It's the authoritative word of God. And so they were going to be very true uh, to the Bible in that way. They are not going to do this uh, randomly without great attention to detail, without great care. And, and secondly, when they're transmitting the Bible, same thing. Those guys who spent all that time writing and copying and transmitting the Bible they, they submit themselves to its authority, and so they take great care in transmitting it so that future generations would have an accurate text in their hands, so that what you have in your hands is accurate, because they believe in the authority of Scripture. And then another note that, that I thought was worth mentioning is that we know a lot about the New Testament authors. We can, we, we've got the historical manuscripts, and we know a lot about them, but the Old Testament's a little bit harder to peg in terms of uh, where it started, and when the oldest manuscripts are, and where they came together. And so one mode of, of checking that that we have, that, and, I'll, and I'll borrow the logic of, of Tim Keller in this, and basically what Tim Keller said was, uh, if we can trust the New Testament, and again, we talked about the Gospels last week in the account of Jesus, we can trust the New Testament, and, and we can, and we can trust Jesus, and that Jesus is who he said he was, and then we can go, well, what did Jesus say about the Old Testament? And every time Jesus talks about the Old Testament, he verifies it, he validates it, and he says, yeah, the Old Testament is true, you can trust it. And so we look at Jesus and we go, okay, we know the Old Testament is good because Jesus checks that for us. And so that's how we can trust the, the Old Testament authenticity as well. And the last section that we're going to look at is problem passages, or, or what we would perceive to be problem passages. Are there, are there conflicting verses? Are there things that don't uh, really add up that cause the Bible not to be true? And so we're going to look at some of those. But first, the idea of inerrancy. And so inerrancy is another doctrine of the Bible. We talk about um, the inerrancy of Scripture. We mean that the Bible does, is without errors. But then we say that, and that can have lots of meanings. What does it mean by error? Does it mean the original has no errors? Does it mean the one you have in your hands has no errors? What do we mean by it doesn't have any errors? There can be degrees of inerrancy. And so we have, uh, we have what I think is, is a really good working definition of inerrancy um, when we kind of eliminate those questions. And what we say is the Bible tells the truth. That's what we mean by inerrancy, that it tells the truth. Now, now, there are still degrees of inerrancy within that. We can say, yeah, the originals are inerrant. There's no errors in the originals, but then there's translation errors. So you have one in your hands that it could have a word that doesn't make a lot of sense in a place that it, it maybe could have been used uh, better, with a, or another word could have used, been used better there. We, we could say that, but we're still saying that the Bible tells the truth. And so I think this is a good working definition for inerrancy when we move forward. So now we get to the question, are there passages that contradict each other? And, and so for the sake of time, we're not going to break down a lot of individual passages. But what we're going to do is, is kind of learn how to think about these passages that seem to contradict each other. 
And so when we look at this idea of whether or not there are contradicting passages, um, there are four, four categories that these fall under. And really it's three because two of them are very related. But, but uh, they fall under these categories when we talk about, hey, these two passages don't make sense. One of these is probably happening. Approximations. So what I mean by approximations is uh, if I told you, hey, uh, I know this guy and he makes $100,000 a year, and then you looked at his tax return and it said he made $100,537, would you call me a liar? Probably not. Because I, I'm still telling the truth. Yeah, the guy makes 100 grand a year. But you look at that and you go, yeah, that's a, that, yeah, we would call that 100 grand. And so that's just a matter of sort of perception. And so when we do approximations, you might see in the Bible one number here and another number here that look different, t- telling from the same account. And that's just because it's an approximation given by the author. Another one would be free quotations. Um, if I said, the Bible says don't lie, is that true? Yes. But are those the words verbatim that the Bible uses? Does the Bible say don't lie? No, not, not literally those words. But you wouldn't say that I was not telling the truth about that. And so we, we would say that there are free quotations. The Bible is free to quote itself. And sometimes uh, it quotes itself with different verbiage, different usage of words uh, than the original text that it's referring to. And so sometimes we see free quotations. Um, then there's the language of, uh, of appearances. It's real similar to that. Um, or different but non-conflicting accounts of the same event. So we might hear uh, Mark say that there was one blind man healed at Jericho, and then Luke comes along and says, no, there were two blind men healed at Jericho, but are they in disagreement? Well, not necessarily. Only if Mark said there was only one man. But if Mark says there was one and, and Luke says there was two, maybe Mark didn't see the other one. Or maybe he wasn't concerned with the other one, but Luke was. Luke was more concerned with details, what actually happened. Mark was just concerned with the fact that Jesus healed a blind man, so he told of the one. And so there we see different accounts of the same event that seem to conflict, but really don't necessarily conflict. And so uh, contradicting passages seem like a problem for a lot of people until we actually investigate them, and they really don't conflict with each other. But that's not as big of a problem for most nonbelievers as this one. What about contradicting ideas? And what I mean by contradicting ideas as opposed to the passages is that, hey, if the Bible claims to be this really high moral uh, authoritative book, if if the Bible is, is big on morals and right and wrong, then why does it condone these things that are really not right, right? Why does the Bible condone things that we would say, morally speaking, are wrong? And what they're talking about usually is something like polygamy or slavery or genocide, and that list sometimes could, could go on. And so, um, so with that contradiction, what I would say is this, um, and I think I said this last week, what I have found 99% of the time is when non-believers or, or just generally critics of the Bible come to the Bible with criticism, and they look at it and they go, I don't like this, this doesn't make sense, so I'm not gonna listen to this. It comes without research, without an understanding of what's actually happening in the Bible. And so let's take, uh, let's take slavery, for example. Does the Bible condone slavery? That's a popular criticism of the Bible because Ephesians uh, 6.5, Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. And people go, well, that's, that's condoning slavery. And so, and, and so we'll, we'll get that thrown in our face as Christians a lot of times, especially with the racial tension going on in the world right now. They'll say, well, the Bible is the reason that we had slaves before. And that's, it's not untrue that people use the Bible to defend slavery, but at the same time, the, the Bible was also used to, to support abolition of slavery. William Wilberforce over in England in the abolition movement used the Bible. So why does the Bible seem like it condones slavery? Well, 
for one thing, Paul uh, was not saying it's good for people to have slaves. What Paul was saying is, if you're a slave, that's just your context. And what I'm concerned with is that you follow your faith, that you do as you are. You, you behave, you conduct yourself as a believer, no matter the context. And so if you are a slave, and, and slavery back then was probably a lot different than we think of as well. But he said, if you're a slave, that didn't change anything. You still need to be obedient. You still need to act like a Christian. Another reason that Paul probably didn't say anything to condemn slavery was because uh, he was not really concerned with social change. The Christians at that point weren't really concerned with policy change. They weren't looking to get laws changed. They were so concerned with the kingdom of God and the, and the, the prophecy that, that Jesus was coming back, they really weren't worried about, hey, we need to change the laws so that there's no more slavery. And really, even if they had been, the church was such a small social movement, really, if you want to call it that, at that point, that they wouldn't have had any, any wait to get any of these things done. So it really wouldn't have mattered if Paul had said, hey, slavery's bad, let's end it, because it was just people in these tiny churches just learning how to be the church. And so for all those reasons, we don't see the Bible condoning slavery, we just don't see it condemning it. We see verses where, where God's gonna say, hey, it's wrong to do this, don't do it. But then we see verses where God's gonna regulate something. Hey, if you're gonna do this, do it this way. Polygamy is that way. People look at the Old Testament and they go, look, polygamy is something God commanded people to do because he gave commandments about polygamy. Really, what God did was say, hey, if you're going to practice polygamy, do it this way. But he allowed for those people to suffer through the outcome of polygamy. When you look at the people who practice polygamy, they always ended up miserable because of it. And God allowed that to happen. And what we see in the Old Testament is not all uh, just the law. It's not just instruction the whole time. It's narrative. It's story. And so we get a story about people disobeying God. That doesn't mean God commanded them to do it. So I hope all of that kind of makes sense in terms of how uh, the Bible seems to condone things that it actually doesn't. But finally, we're, gonna, we're just going to conclude with this. And, and this is what I'm just calling the unbeliever's dilemma. It's, the, it's the, the last thing that an unbeliever has to face, maybe the first thing that an unbeliever has to face when questioning the validity of the Bible. Because the question is, are, are you, do you have a problem with the evidence, right? That the evidence to support whether or not the Bible is true, or do you have a problem with the message? Because I, I would argue, and, and I think a lot of other uh, Christians would, would argue the same, that the biggest problem that people have with the Bible is not its reliability, but its message. It isn't simply that the Bible is hard to trust, but the Bible confronts us with hard truths about our relationship to God, our human nature, and our desperate need for reconciliation. Those are all difficult things to swallow. And the Bible claims truth, and people don't like to be told that something's true that they don't agree with. So when the Bible claims truth, and it's not what they believe, they're not going to like that, and they're going to criticize. Uh, the Bible tells us that selfishness is a problem that must be addressed and even destroyed. And we're averse to things that demand that we change, or in this case, that we surrender and that is the message of the Bible. Surrender yourself to God and be saved. Let's pray.